that you'd bless this time in the study of your word. Lord, how we need to hear from you. And, and Lord, even though we go through these chapters, these five chapters, we'll survey it, and there's a lot of names that are there, but you know these individuals. And these individuals were recorded because, um, Lord, you, you care about us. You know our names. Um, you know everything about us. And, and what you're showing here is more than just a historical record, but um, we know that, um, that ministry was entrusted to them, that um, the genealogy is given to us, that um, we know that each one of these individuals you cared about and uh, were important, and uh, we can learn from that. And so as we survey these chapters, I pray that uh, we would make application tonight that it's more than just a historical text that we're looking at. But Lord, it's the Word of God that touches our hearts. And we can come and we can think, how can a a list of names, and uh, how can that really be beneficial? Lord, we're going to see that it is. So bless this time as we open up our hearts to you and our ears. I pray that our cell phones would be off and uh, we'd be settled in our seats. And uh, with their ears open and our hearts soft before you, in Jesus' name, amen. So we are going through these genealogies that the first nine chapters of First Chronicle is recorded for us. And of course, what we saw was the genealogy of Abraham. And uh, the covenant would go through Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob, his name, as we know from Genesis chapter 32, was changed to Israel. Israel means governed by God. And so in chapter 4, what we began to look at is the different uh, families of Jacob's uh, family, that is, his sons. And, of course, Jacob had 12 sons, which were the patriarchs to the 12 tribes of Israel. And we began to look at the family of Judah. The family of Judah, of course, is the line that Messiah would come through, and David as well. We also saw the line of Simeon, and we talked a little bit briefly about that. And as we're going through these chapters, we're not reading every name. We're just surveying the chapters, and let's continue to do that as we continue to look at Israel's uh, family, or Jacob's family, now the sons of Reuben, and the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph. So Reuben was the first firstborn of Jacob's, as we read in the book of Genesis. But he would lose that uh, right to the double portion of the inheritance. You see, the firstborn, there were special blessings that came to that, and that was they got a double inheritance. And so uh, he would lose that, Reuben, because he sinned with his father's concubine. You read about that in the book of Genesis, chapter 35, verse 22. So the right of the firstborn was given to Joseph, and we know the story of Joseph. Joseph was the one in the book of Genesis that was the favorite son of Jacob, again, known as Israel. And he was the one that was given that coat of many colors. And it was Joseph that was thrown into a pit. He was sold into slavery by his brothers because they were envious and jealous of him to uh, uh, sent off to Egypt where he would serve as a slave in Potiphar's house. And it was there that he would eventually be thrown in prison because it was Potiphar's wife that made advances towards Joseph. Joseph was just a young man. He was a teenager, about 17 years old is what scholars tell us. 
And he was one that had such a heart for the Lord. And so she made advances towards him, and uh, he would uh, not give in to the temptation. He would say, as she would cry out to Joseph, lie with me, and grabbed him, actually. And he said, how can I do this wickedness before my God? And I pray for all of us that when temptation comes, that we would have that kind of heart. Uh, Lord, how can I do this, this wickedness? I don't want to give in to this temptation. I don't want to hurt you. How can I do this before my God? Because sin does hurt the heart of God as well as it hurts us and the consequences of sin. So Joseph fled, but he ended up being thrown in prison, and we know he was there for a number of years. And then he would come up and uh, interpret a dream for Pharaoh, and he became the prime minister. As he became the prime minister, uh, he had two sons named Ephraim and Manasseh, and they were a part of the double inheritance um, that was given to Joseph. So Ephraim and Manasseh, Judah would prevail because he, through Judah, would come the messianic line. Um, So we learn so much from Joseph, and that's why as you go through the Old Testament, particularly as you go through the books of, um, you know, Moses and the book of Joshua, you can think, well, there's 13 tribes that are listed. It's because Joseph's sons were included in uh, those tribes. And so you have the family of Reuben that is listed there, verses 3 through 9. They were the ones, the tribes you recall, on the east side of the Jordan River. And then as you go to verse 10 of chapter 5, Now in the days of Saul, they made war with the Hagarites, who fell by their hand, and they dwelt in their tents throughout the entire area of Gilead. So the Hagarites were the children of Hagar. You recall we talked about her. She's the one that had a son, Ishmael, with Abraham there in the book of Genesis. And um, it is Ishmael that is the father of the Arab people. And God said that you are going to be uh, multiplied, your descendants, Ishmael. And truly that has happened. So that's a quick review of the family of Reuben. And then in verses 11 through 22, what we have is a family of Gad. Now, along with Reuben, there was Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh that was on the east side of the Jordan River. See, what happened when, when Moses had the children of Israel on the east side of the Jordan River, they're about ready to cross the Jordan River. They just defeated the Ammonites. And they're going to go into the promised land, take the promised land. But before they did that, it was Gad, Reuben, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. They came to Moses and said, Moses, we have cattle, and we like it up here on this hillside. So can we have this as an inheritance? So God granted that to them. Even though Moses was upset, he wanted them to go into the promised land. He wanted them to, to, to go and possess that, which God was going to give to them. But the Lord said they can be on the east side of the Jordan River. So that's where they would have their inheritance. And as you read about the family of Gad, go to verse 18. The sons of Reuben and Gadites and half of the tribe of Manasseh had 44,760 valiant men. Men, men able to bear shield and sword and to shoot with the bow and skillful in war who went to war. And they made war with Hagrites and Jetar and Naphish and Nodab and, and they were helped against them and the Hagrites were delivered into their hand and all who were with them for they cried out to God
God in the battle. He heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. And so we can learn from this, of course, something that most of us know, but it's always something that is told to us and we're reminded of in the scriptures as we go through it, even um, in verses that we just read that uh, you would think that uh, these verses, as you read them, that, um, you know, Lord, thank you for reminding me of this. I can make application tonight. It is simply this, that in our lives, that it's a spiritual battle out there, isn't it? And that's why we're told to put on the whole armor of God. That's why I'm excited about having that lesson be taught to the kids, you know, the whole armor of God. And that's something that you and I are told to do because it is a spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. And we know that we are to put on the whole armor of God because the enemy comes against us. You see, as a Christian, here's the thing to remember. It's a battleground out there. It's not a playground. And I think that sometimes Christians, and there are some you know, churches and ministries and circles in Christianity that they will, you know, make Christianity seem like that it's just, um, you know, it's always going to be rosy and cherry and, and um, no problems and um, all of these things. And, and the thing is, the Christian is involved in a battle, and it's a spiritual battle. And here they were going through a battle, and they were victorious because they prayed. They cried out to the Lord. And in our spiritual battle, it's very important that we do that as well, isn't it? That for us to have victory, that what we are to do is be victorious in that we cry out to the Lord. We are to be men and women of prayer. And as we do, the Lord hears us. And prayer is so important, even as we're seeing with the book of Acts. It is the vehicle in which God works. And they would cry out to the Lord. And you see the Lord working such miracles and working in powerful ways as his people are crying out to him. And that's what you and I are to do, a very important uh, part of the spiritual battle that we're involved in for us to be able to have victory. So we continue here. We go to verse uh, 23 uh, through 26. We see the family. Manasseh. This is half of the tribe of Manasseh that is on the east side. And as you read verse 26, so the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Paul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He carried the Rubanites and the Gadites and half of the tribe of Manasseh into captivity. He took them to Hala and Harbor and Haran, the river of Gozon, to this day. Now we know that the reason that they were taken off into captivity, remember in our study of First and Second Kings, that after the reign of Solomon, there was Rehoboam, his son. And during Rehoboam's reign, that the ten northern tribes broke away and they split it away from the house of Judah. That is Judah, uh, the house of Judah, and the nation of Judah down south that consisted of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. So the northern nation, the house of Israel, uh, was uh, the ten northern tribes with Reuben and Gad and Manasseh on the east side. And we know that they would be taken off into captivity by the Assyrians in about 722 B.C., but what we read here, once again, just as we read in Second Kings, is that before the, the, all of the ten northern tribes were carried off into captivity, that those tribes on the east side of the Jordan River, that is um, Gad and Reuben and half of the tribe Manasseh, those tribes on the outer edges. And oftentimes it, it was difficult to get there, and, and um, they would miss out on some of the things that God was doing in the promised land to those, with those other tribes because they were on the fringes and stuff. They actually were the first ones that were taken off into captivity by Paul, the king of Assyria, and then eventually the rest of the ten uh, 
tribes would be taken off into captivity uh, later on, about 10 years later. But here's the lesson in that, and that is the enemy will try to isolate you. He'll try to get you to be on the fringes of what God is doing you know, uh, he doesn't want you to be engaged in the things of the Lord. He doesn't want you, the enemy, to, for you to be engaged in prayer or worship or service or being in fellowship. So one of the things is, is that the enemy will try to keep you on the, the edge, try to keep you where you're isolated. And he knows that if he can do that, then he has a better chance of, of carrying you off into captivity. When it comes to sin, when it comes to temptation, when it comes to this world. And that's why it's very important that we remain in fellowship. You know, there's safety in a multitude of counsel, but there's safety in being with the body of believers closely connected to them. And as a shepherd, I know that um, as, you know, I think about the sheep that God has entrusted to me, the shepherd over, that any shepherd that shepherds over sheep know that when the sheep are gathered together, and stay close together, that there's safety there. It's that one that begins to get off on the fringes that that wolf can get to and pluck off. And so that's the tactic of the enemy, trying to get you to, to be isolated, to, to think, well, it's not important for me to have devotions anymore. It's not important for me to be in fellowship. It's not important me, for me to be engaged in service. And it is, because there's safety in that as well as there is blessing in, in all of those things as well. It's kind of like, and I've used this illustration before, uh, but when we go to Yellowstone and when we watch the wolves in the Lamar Valley, that when they attack like a herd of elk, the elk will all be in a, a group, this herd of elk running together. But eventually one will kind of stray off, uh, get confused, a um, little bit slower than the others. And that's the one that that pack of wolves will go after the one who's isolated, the one who's slower, the one that's in the rear or on the fringes. And it's the same thing with the enemy uh, who is a roaring lion, sinking whom he may devour. He's going to go after that easy prey. And so make sure that you keep in fellowship, in your devotions. You're with other brothers and sisters. You're serving the Lord. It's so important that you're consistent in that. And the reason that I'm kind of parking on this a little bit tonight is because I know that a spring is coming and spring is going going to come. Uh, it is going to stop snowing, and summer is going to come, and summertime is a time of activity, and we get busy, and that's great, and it's a blessing to be able to do that and get away, but what can happen is, is sometimes I'll have people say, well, Pastor Jeff, we won't, won't see you this summer. You know, we're going to be gone. We're too busy doing these things, and, um, and I know that we get busy and stuff, but please, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's the commandment of Hebrews chapter 10, especially as you see the day approaching, and especially as you see as crazy and mixed up as this world is, how it's important that you stay close to the body of believers, that we're here to edify each other and build each other up, and, and there's blessing in that. So here um, is um, these guys, uh, the family of Manasseh on the east side, that um, again, in uh, these tribes that were taken off into captivity because they were on the fringes. Chapter 6, we have the family of Levi. Now, Levi, they uh, were the descendants, the priestly tribe. And that's where the priests came from. And every priest was a Levite, but there were different families of the Levites. Not every Levite was a priest. 
And what I mean by that is we read in chapter 6, the sons of Levi were Gershon and Koath and Merai. And we know that um, verse 3, you can read that, the children of, of Amram were Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. So we know that Aaron and Moses, uh, we know about them. And Miriam was the sister of Moses, and she's the one that got struck with leprosy by the Lord because she came against her brother Moses. And she was struck with leprosy, and then she ended up being healed by that. But Moses and Aaron, in the tribe of Levi, you see, in the book of Numbers, one of the things and themes about the book of Numbers is that uh, God does things decently and in order. Um, there's order to what God does um, in, in, uh, with his people. And uh, it parallels to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, do all things decently and in order. And when it came to the children of Israel in their wilderness wandering, it wasn't just a mass of people just, you know, up and took their stuff and went out into the wilderness. They were to march in a certain order according to tribe. And then as they sat up, uh, or they would, you know, camp in, in the wilderness, and remember this, that they were led by the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, that um, it would uh, then be the children of Israel that were to camp in a specific order according to Numbers chapter 2. And in Numbers chapter 2, we're told that three tribes would be on the east side of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was in the middle and then on the east side, three tribes. On the south side, three tribes. On the west side, three tribes. On the north side, there would be three tribes as well. And then in the middle was the tribe of Levi. That's where Moses and Aaron and the priests would be. And so they're set up there. And uh, it was the direct descendants of Aaron, as you recall, that were told that you're going to be the priests. Now we're going to see the responsibility of the priests but they were the ones that uh, did the sacrifices, worked in the tabernacle, and then the high priest would give that atonement for the nation on the Day of Atonement. So that was the, the priest. And then there was the Levites that came along and assisted the priest in their ministry. They did not do the work of the priest, but they assisted the priest. And there was three families that we read here as Levi, the Gershon, Koath, and the Marais. Now, as you read Numbers chapter 4, we are told the responsibilities of those different families. The Gershonites, they were responsible for the fabrics of the tabernacle. Now remember the tabernacle was a portable structure there in the wilderness. It was made of animal skins, and um, what they would do when that pillar of cl cloud or pillar of fire would move, it would lift and move, and so the children of Israel would have to pack up, and the Levites would pack up the tabernacle. And the Gershonites, what they were responsible for was for the fabric of the tabernacle, the covering the, the uh, tent, the, the clothes, the curtains, the cords, and all of that. The Maronites, they were responsible for the boards and the sockets and, and things like that. You see, the, the tabernacle, even though it was covered with animal skins, on the inside was boards that you read about uh, there in the book of Exodus. And those boards were made of acacia wood, and they were lined with gold. And you can imagine the floor was dirt, but the menorah that was there in the tabernacle, it was the only source of light, that that light would reflect off of that gold. So it would be very, very beautiful. So those boards had, you know, pegs and sockets that they put together. And 
the, um, the Maronites were responsible for all of that, taking um, that down and, and uh, then putting it back up. Now, the Kohathites, what they were responsible for, according to Numbers chapter 4, is they were the ones that would carry the furnishings. They would carry the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It was that golden box that had rings on the corner, and they put poles through it. And what the priests would do is go into the tabernacle. They would cover the furnishings. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would cover the Ark of the Covenant. And then the Levites would go in backwards, and then they would carry those furnishings on their shoulders. So that was all the responsibilities that they have. Now you say, so what? There's an important lesson in this. And that is, God has different responsibilities and callings and gifts that he's given to you and to me. And they're all important, and they're different. There's a variety of gifts. There's, there's div- diversities of ministries that he's called us to, as we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He has something for you to do. Now, here's what we see also in the book of Numbers that I think is worth mentioning tonight. In Numbers chapter 16, you remember that it was Korah. He was uh, of the family of Koath. And here was Koah, a Levite. He brings some of his friends. He brings 250 leaders of the children of Israel. They come to Moses and they come to Aaron. And they say, Moses and Aaron, you guys take too much upon yourself. You think you're really special. Well, we're special too. And as you read the chapter, what you see is that Korah was challenging Aaron in his ministry as the high priest. And so Korah, he wanted to be the high priest. He wanted to be the one that went behind the veil on the Day of Atonement where he would go before the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. That's what he wanted. Hey, I'm special too. You take too much upon yourself, Aaron. You think you're really special being able to do that. And what happened was this rebellion came against Moses and Aaron. And God heard it, and he saw it, and what he did is he opened up the earth and swallowed all of those guys, Korah and the 250 leaders of the children of Israel. And there he made confirmation that Aaron, I have called him, because his, bud is going, his rod is going to bud. You're going to put it in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant, and it's going to show that I've chosen Aaron to be the high priest. The lesson is simply this that sometimes it's very easy to look at somebody else and say, I want to do their ministry. And you can become envious. You can become jealous. It's something that, that I can do if I'm not careful of. How come I don't have a ministry like them? How come, you know, I'm not able to do what they do? And here's the thing. Korah had a ministry. It was to carry the Ark of the Covenant, the furnishings, and it was an important ministry. But yet he wanted to do something that God had not called him to do. And one way that any of us can find ourselves in a pit or being swallowed up with defeat and discouragement spiritually is that you try to take on something that God hasn't called you to do or you become envious or jealous of somebody else's ministry or what they are doing or their calling in life because you want that. And here he was swallowed up because of his spirit of rebellion. And I pray that none of us would go in that direction and have that to be a part of our lives. We don't have to have a spirit of rebellion. We don't have to be envious and jealous of anybody else. God has something specifically for you to do. And he's going to place you where he wants to place you. You can trust in him and you can flow in the giftings that he's given to you and the ministry that he's called you to. 
So we don't have to go through that, and that is recorded for us so we can learn from that. So here is the family of Levi here in chapter 6. Go to verses 31 and 32. Let's read that. Now these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. And they were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they served in their office according to their order. So here David he what he did is we know that as we've read in second samuel that david wanted to build the temple didn't he and he was told that david you're not going to build the temple your hands are bloodied you're a man of war your son solomon's going to build the temple but what david did is he began to get the priest in order he began to get the levites all in order and we're going to see that as the temple is going to be built that the ministry of the levites is going to expand there's going to be gatekeepers and musicians that are spoken of here in the house of the lord that they're going to offer worship day and night and that's what david did he had it all ready to go he even got the building supplies ready to go so that when he died and solomon came on the scene that solomon just had to kind of follow the plan and things were in place so here is david he did that he would appoint these men who would uh, be uh, over the service of song in the house of the lord after the ark came to rest so what had happened was we know that in first samuel chapter 4 the ark of the covenant the ark of the covenant had been in shiloh for for a few hundred years and in first samuel chapter 4 after the days of the judges or towards the end of the days of the judges the children of israel are not right with god they go to war against the philistines the philistines defeat the children of israel what they did was is they went and got the ark of the covenant out of the holy of holies and they brought it out the battle what they said is if we go get it it will give us victory they had reduced god to an it that's how bad it was spiritually at that time of 1 Samuel chapter 4. Well, the children of Israel get defeated. The Ark of the Covenant gets captured. It ends up going to Philistine country because they were doing war with the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant was put into the Temple of Dagon. And you know the story how that Ark of the Covenant was taken out, uh, passed from city to city in the in the area in the major cities of the philistines and god would strike the philistines so what they did is they said we got to get rid of this ark of the covenant so they put it on a cart they they put it, it um, hitched to two milk cows and they would go towards israel and the ark would go back to israel and it ended up in kerjeff jerim and there it stayed in kerjeff jerim for a number of years and when saul became king after the days of the judges we know that the people came to Samuel and said we don't want to judge over us we want a king over us we don't want your son Samuel to rule over us we want to be like the other nations and so Saul was appointed the first king of Israel and during that time Saul because he was so busy pursuing David and trying to kill David that the ark stayed there in Kerjeth Jerim so David comes to power and during that time David defeats Jerusalem. We're going to read about that in a few chapters. David, um, it's interesting that the Jebusites ruled over Jerusalem, that during the days of Judges, um, that they did not go to war against the Jebusites. Even when Joshua came into the Promised Land, that was an area that was not you know, uh, um, that they didn't do battle. They didn't defeat the Jebusites, um, that that remained in the enemy's hands. 
So here it is, over 400 years later, after Joshua comes into the promised land, that David says, I'm going to take that mountain, the Jebusites. They said, go ahead, try to come in here. So David defeated the Jebusites, took Jerusalem. He built the city of David. The city of David initially was, you know, part of, um, it was Jerusalem. And then as Jerusalem grew, the city of David was included in that. But David, what he wanted to do is bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, the city of David. And he wanted to establish Jerusalem as the place of worship. He says, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. And as he did that, he would appoint these musicians to go before the Ark of the Covenant to worship. And David was a worshiper, wasn't he? Worship was very much an important part of David's life. And that's one of the reasons why he was called a man after God's own heart. So here were these musicians in the house of the Lord. And we read in verse 33, one of them, and these are the ones who ministered with their sons. So the sons of the Kohathites were the first one that is mentioned here is Heman. Now, Heman, he's mentioned several times in connection with temple worship in the days of, of David and also with Solomon. He was an important part of the ceremonies when they brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and also for the dedication of the temple uh, when the temple was completed. He's the one that wrote Psalm 88. Now, Psalm 88 is an interesting psalm. Let me just read some of it to you. Um, I'm not going to read all of it, but that was written by him. And it's a prayer for help in, um, when someone's going through great sorrow. He, he writes this. Um, he writes, O Lord God of my salvation, I've cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead. And he, he goes on and he's writing this psalm. You can hear his sorrow and his heart that is grieving. And, and he goes on and he says, But you I have cried out in verse 13, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. So here is Heman. He's writing this psalm when he's going through uh, um, heavy sorrow, a heart that is pressed because of his difficulty. And in these psalms that, that you read, such as what he wrote, and also his brother Asaph, what you see is there's a closeness that comes to the Lord. In other words, some of the greatest psalms that we read come from the heavy sorrow, a heart that is pressed, and they found closeness and they found intimacy with the Lord and realized the faithfulness of the Lord. And I mention that because when you go through the difficulties and as you turn to the Lord and cry out to Him, know that a song can be birthed within you because of that closeness that you can have with the Lord. That Paul would say, oh, that I may know him and the power of and the, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. There's a deep level of fellowship that you can have with the Lord when you're going through the difficulties and the sorrows and the hard times of life. A song can be birthed within you because you cry out to the Lord. There's that closeness to the Lord. And also you'll see the faithfulness of the Lord.
So here is Heman. He is one that was an important worshiper. And then as I mentioned to you, as you go to verse 39, there is um, his brother Asaph. Now Asaph is probably a familiar name to you, isn't it? Asaph is one that wrote many of the Psalms. And you see that here is Heman, here is Asaph. And um, I think that as you have these two brothers here who wrote these Psalms that were worship leaders, that they made uh, for one of the greatest worship-leading combinations in history. I would have loved to have met these two guys. And they were worshipers because they worship out of deep devotion to the Lord. You see, what I want to relay to us tonight is that God here, that we see that he again is going to be listing these musicians that were before the Lord, that were ministering day and night. And he mentions these guys as they were musicians that ministered the house of the Lord. And when they brought the Ark of the Covenant, worship should be a very important part of our Christian lives. And you see, I pray for us that as we gather corporately, that as we come together on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, that we wouldn't just see worship as to be entertained. I pray that we wouldn't see worship as just an exercise that we go through, but this is something that we do together corporately. We worship together with one heart and one accord and give our devotion to the Lord. It's very much an important part of our lives, and I pray that you feel free to worship here, to be able to lift your hands to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that, to be able to just focus on Him and cry out to Him. To, to really engage in worship because we are going to be worshiping in eternity. That's going to be a big part of heaven. We see that in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And what I find interesting when we get to chapter 9 here, and we'll get to that in just a few minutes as we continue to survey, those musicians, we are told that they were ones that were in the temple there that were ministering day and night. And I just wonder if David had a little bit of insight knowing that that takes place in heaven. Because in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, in that heavenly scene, you see the throne of God described to us and the four living creatures and the 24 elders, and they're worshiping, what, the Lord day and night, and they do not stop. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. For you have created us for your good pleasures. And one of the things that gives pleasure to the Lord is when you and I are worshipers, I pray that worship is very much an important part of your life. And you see, it's more than us coming together and singing corporately, but it's an attitude of the heart. Do you have a song in your heart, making melody in your heart to the Lord day and night? You have a heart of thankfulness and gratitude, of just awe and wonder of the incredible grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I hope and pray is a part of our Christian lives that we would truly be worshipers. So here were these guys, they were worshipers, Heman and, and Asaph, a great combination, great worship leaders. And then in verses 40 through uh, 48, what you have here, the list continues. And in verse 48, and their brethren, the Levites, were appointed to every kind of service of the tabernacle of the house of God. Listen, there is no shortage of things that need to be done. They were appointed to every kind of service. There's no shortage of things to be done for the kingdom of God. Do you know that? And I think about if Christians, every one of us would engage in what God would have for us to do and the giftings that he's given to us, what power that is 
for this ministry, for this community. Because not only are we going to minister here at Calvary Chapel, but we have ministry outside of these four walls and in our neighborhoods and workplaces and other ministries, being able to reach out to, to you know, those who need the love of Jesus Christ. And I just want to encourage you that God does have something for you to do. He's gifted you, and there's all kinds of practical things to do, and there's no shortage of things to do. I think about, you know, one of the announcements we're going to make on Sunday is for our children's ministry. And our children's ministry is a high priority. And we're so blessed that those who minister to the children, but there always seems to be a need in the nursery and in the children's ministry. And I think every single one of us that are here, we would say, yes, our children are important. And they are important, aren't they? When you look at what Jesus had to say about children, he had such a high value and importance of children, saying that if you want to be one that is the greatest in the kingdom, humble yourself as a child. And to be a part of the kingdom of God, you must come in childlike faith. And he would have a child, and he would use that child as an illustration of, of not to stumble a child in faith. It would be better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you cast into the sea. Don't forbid the children to come unto me, as he rebuked his disciples. So Jesus saw the importance of children coming to him. And when you really think about it, as we see the craziness of the world and as we see the evil that is in the world, our children need us to minister to them. Us as parents and us here as a church. And there are those who are bringing children that they don't have godly parents. They're bringing friends. They're bringing others. And we want to be able to minister to them. And and yet what happens is There's such a shortage of those willing to help even once a month. And I'm not saying this to scold or put a guilt trip. Listen, not all of us are called to minister to children. But I think about what we could do and how we could minister effectively if everyone was getting involved in what God would have them to do. And here's the thing. When you get involved with ministry, whether it's with the children or with the coffee shop or handing out bulletins or coming in and cleaning the church, taking care of the grounds, whatever it might mean, building, you know, making meals for people, discipling, ministering to the youth, doing practical things for people. It is such a joy to serve the true and the living God. It really is. It will bring great joy to you. And if you're not serving the Lord in some way, even if it means that the place that I'm at in my life, that I'm serving my children, I'm I'm raising them up in the ways of the Lord, that's my priority. That pleases the Lord. That's ministry. But maybe you're in a place where I can pray. You know, we can take the directory and we can pray for those families and we can lift them up before the Lord. We can pray for the church. You know, I can make a meal for somebody who may be hurting. And you're going to experience great joy in your life as you're just sensitive to the leading of the Lord, what he wants to do in your life and opportunities that he gives to you. For the time that I've had to be able to serve the Lord, it's been a great privilege and it's brought me great joy and the same with my family. So I want to encourage you in that. There's no shortage of things, as it says here. They were pointing to every kind of service for the tabernacle. Verses 49 through 53, we see the family of Aaron and we see that his sons offered in verse 49 sacrifices on the altar of burnt offering on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place and to make atonement for Israel. 
according to all that Moses, a servant of God, had commanded. So the priests were the ones that did the sacrifices. They're the ones that, you know, burnt incense in, on the altar of incense in the holy place. The high priest was the one that made atonement for sin on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And then verses 54 through 81, what you have there is the dwelling place of the Levites. Remember, when they went into the promised land, the Lord told the Levites, you're not going to get an inheritance of land. I'll be your inheritance. So they had cities and common lands where they would live, and then the other tribes would provide for them. Chapter 7, the families of the 12 tribes of Israel continue. The family of Issachar, as we read there, the sons of Issachar in verse 1. In verses 1 through 5, uh, we see that um, they are listed there. In verse 5, now their brethren among all the families of Issachar were mighty men of valor listed by their genealogies, 87,000 in all. And then in verses 6 through 12 was the tribe of Benjamin, and they were the ones that were known to be mighty valor uh, mighty men of valor um, as well. The tribe of Benjamin, Saul, the first king of Israel in the Old Testament was from the tribe of Benjamin and also Saul of Tarsus that we're going to be reading about. His name's going to be changed as we will see on Sunday to Paul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin as well. And then in verses 13 through 19, what we have listed, or verse 13 is Naphtali, and then verses 14 through 19 is uh, the family of Manasseh on the west side. I want to draw attention to verse 15. Verse 15, Zelo Fahad, that's listed there. Zelo Fahad begot only daughters. You might remember him. He was the one in Numbers chapter 27 that went to Moses, and he said, Moses, um, you know, we're going to go into the promised land, and I've had nothing but daughters. And uh, so they get an inheritance. So the Lord went to the Lord, and the Lord said, yes, pass your inheritance on through your daughters. If a family doesn't have any sons, your inheritance can pass through the daughters. And if you don't have any children, then it passes through the brothers. So very important question um, about female inheritance rights that was asked by him. And then in verses 20 through 29, you have the family of Ephraim and the sons of Ephraim, and they're listed there. And um, from Ephraim, verse 27, Nun, his son, and Joshua, his son. So Joshua, the one that would lead the children of Israel into the promised land, the, the son of Nun uh, from the tribe of Ephraim. Also Samuel, Samuel, the last judge, was from this tribe as well. Verses 30 through 40, the family of Asher. And we read in verse 40, And all these were the children of Asher, heads of their fathers, houses, choice men, mighty men of valor, chief leaders, and they were recognized by genealogies among the army fit for battle. Their number was 26,000. I like that phraseology. They were mighty men as well, um, choice men. Uh, they were ones that were fit for battle. As I think about fit for battle, they have been trained. They exercise. They're in good health. And spiritually, the way for us to be fit for battle is you be a man and woman of prayer. You be a man and woman of the word. You be a man and woman of of dedication and faithfulness to the Lord, and you'll be fit for battle as you're putting on the armor of God in your life. But Asher, what you see uh, as you go through this, it, it sometimes it'll ring a bell with a few things. Does it remind you of somebody in the New Testament that was from the tribe of Asher? It was Anna in Luke chapter 2. 
Remember Anna? She was a widow for many years. She was at the temple there in Jerusalem when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus when he was only eight days old to be dedicated at the temple. They walked 10 miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And as they came to the temple, Anna was there. And she recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. So that little vignette is told to us there in Luke chapter 2. And for you and for me to truly be valiant men and women of God is that we be ones that are dedicated to the Lord like Anna was, giving yourself over to prayer, over to, to being uh, one that is sensitive to the Lord and how the Lord leads us and guides us. And that's what we learn from her incredible woman listed there in chapter 2 of Luke. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 40, we have another list of Benjamin that is there. And you can read that list uh, on your own, but I'm not going to go over it. Uh, a person, another person from Benjamin uh, was, um, was um, in Judges chapter 3, and that was Ehud, who ended up killing Eglag, who was uh, oppressing the children of Israel. You can go to verse 40 of chapter 8. And the sons of Elam were mighty men of valor, archers, and they had many sons and grandsons, 150 in all, and these were the sons of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, they were known for uh, being great archers and also being able to use the sword with their left and right hand. Then in chapter 9, very quickly, just a couple more minutes and we'll be done, uh, we have uh, now in Jerusalem the children of Judah dwelt and some of the children of Benjamin and of the children of Ephraim and Manasseh. And what we have here is those who would come back after the Babylonian captivity. So that's what we have listed here. Um, and uh, we see that those dwellers there in Jerusalem. And then in verses 3 through 9, what we have here, skipping over the 70 years of captivity, the list is very similar to Nehemiah chapter 11, those in Jerusalem. And they began to come back um, after the decree was given by Cyrus to come on back. You guys can go back to Jerusalem. Only a small number would come back to Jerusalem. And, um, and here's the thing. Um, when they came back, they had to travel 900 miles across the desert. They came back to a place that was full of rubble. Everything destroyed. Solomon's temple was destroyed. It was not easy for them. But I just want to mention this. That sometimes where the Lord has us to go and what he wants us to do is not always easy. But we need to be where God wants us to be. Most of the people stayed back in Persia and Babylon because they were established there. Only a small number would come back. So these are the ones that would dwell in Jerusalem that are listed there. And then the priests at Jerusalem and the Levites at Jerusalem in verses 10 through 16 are listed there. Jedediah in verse 10. We have some of the others that are mentioned there. And again, as you look at this, uh, you see that they were men of, uh, that were dedicated to the Lord. They were ones that were faithful. And as you read in verse 13, that they were very able men for the work of the service of the house of the Lord. And then in verses 17 through 27, what you have is the gatekeepers. They were the Levites. And in verse 26, for in this trusted office were four chief gatekeepers. They were Levites. They had charge over the chambers and the treasuries of the house of God. And they lodged, all, they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility and they were in charge of opening it every morning. I want to leave you with this tonight. And we'll, we'll stop there for, for 
uh, chapter 9 because the genealogy continues. But here's the thing. They were ones that were trusted with ministry. They had a great responsibility. They were faithful to the ministry. They were ones that every single morning they would go and open up the gates. They would help people in that needed to be helped. They kept the people that weren't supposed to come in out. They were ones that made sure that things were in place for the people to come and worship. Listen, in the ministry here, whatever it is that you do for the Lord, that is a, he entrusts you to that ministry. In other words, take it seriously. It's a great responsibility that you have. These guys were faithful. They were entrusted to ministry. They were responsible. And that's the way that we would treat any ministry that's been given to us. Hey, I'm going to usher. I'm not going to show up five minutes before service. I'm going to show up a half hour before service because that's how early you have to get here now. Because people aren't just coming in 15 minutes before. They're coming 20 minutes before, 25 minutes. I'm going to make sure that I am the best usher that I can be, ready to go, ready to hand out bulletins. If it's working in the coffee shop, if it's working with the children, I'm going to be ready. This ministry has been entrusted to me. And I want to be one that's ready to receive those children and talk to the parents and be ready with my lesson. That if it's whatever it might be, that we would take it as serious as what they did here and what the Lord desires for us to do, not to take it lightly. Nah, I don't need to show up, you know, for usher. I don't need to show up for a coffee shop. I don't need to show up what, you know, we talked about me doing or for a class to be a helper. They can just get somebody else. No, that should never be our mindset. Oh, this has been entrusted to me. And I'm going to be responsible, and I'm going to do the best that I can. I'm going to be faithful in what that might mean. Whatever it is that you're doing, discipling a group, if you're ministering to others in some way, whatever it might mean, hey, Lord, thank you for this ministry and allowing me to be able to serve you with gladness of heart, with a heart of thankfulness, and the ministry you've entrusted to me Lord, I want to be faithful to it. So, Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for these reminders that we see here in, in these chapters. And, Lord, I just pray that, um, I just want to pray for us tonight. It is so incredible that there were ones that we belong to you, Lord. That Jesus came and rescued us. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. He rose again. And Lord, we have reason to celebrate. We have a living hope because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And Lord, I pray that we would never lose that impact on our hearts of the great provision and love that's been demonstrated to us and given to us. And Lord, I thank you that those of us who have come in faith, put our faith and trust in what Jesus has done for us, that we celebrate our salvation. And pray, I pray, Lord, if there is anyone here tonight that maybe that commitment has never been made in their lives, that you would know that you can do that tonight, right where you're sitting. Simply realizing that your sin has separated you from God, and you can't save yourself. Jesus came to, to be our 
Savior. He is the Savior of the world. He went to the cross, the sinless one, died for your sins, was put into a grave and rose again. He conquered sin and death. And salvation comes to those who come in faith, just trusting in Him. Do you trust in Him? Do you know that if you were to die tonight or tomorrow, where are you going to go? It was the thief on the cross that was shortly going to die, and he turned to Jesus and said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, You'll be with me in paradise. It was an act of faith, realizing that he needed the Savior of the world. And as you surrender your heart and cry out to him, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sins. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you died on Calvary's cross for me. You were put into a grave and you rose again. And I open my heart to you. My life is not my own. I surrender completely to you. I believe in you. And thank you for dying for me.